The Arwen Lewis Show is brought to you by OMAD Records. Find out more at omadrecords.com. As part of the Jeremiah Show, it's the Arwen Lewis Show. Arwen Lewis is a singer, a songwriter, and a guitarist. She inhabits our blue planet, but her beliefs belong in the celestial realm. As the daughter of Peter Lewis, a founding member of rock and roll cult icons Moby Grape, and the granddaughter of Oscar-winning actress Loretta Young, she's been part of the creative cosmos all of her life. She's a slice of sonic heaven, poised to enter your heart, mind, and soul. She's an artist, producer, and writer, and she's your radio host. Everybody, this is Arwen Lewis, and you're listening to the Arwen Lewis Show. My show is under the Jeremiah Show platform, and I feature people in the music business, uh, musicians, producers, engineers, and on upwards. And today, I have a very special guest, Mr. Ed Stasium. Howdy. Hi, Ed. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Arwen. Thanks for having me. I'm going to read everybody a little bio about you, and then we'll get started in chatting about this extremely extensive, amazing career you've had. Um, So everybody, producer, engineer, and mixer Ed Stasium would rather say it's all about the music when pressed for highlights for his career. Helping an artist clearly bring their vision to fruition while taking care to make sure the sound shines, Ed finds himself taking a role as just another member of the band, while leading a project to completion. Ed um, has a fresh eye for musical substance where he can lead a veteran's wealth of studio experience. His valuable instinct for mediation has been useful in many situations where he's had to be a Henry Kissinger of rock and roll, as he'll describe with a smile. Ed Stasium hails from the beautiful Garden State, New Jersey, where he became interested in tape recorders and guitars when he was a young lad. He recorded and was a guitar-playing member of countless garage bands during his formative years. While attending the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, Ed joined a local New Jersey group named Brandywine. Setting up Making Shift Studio and their manager's basement, he recorded demos, and in 1971, the band went on to sign with and record an album for Brunswick Records and Engineers by Bruce Sweden. In 1972, he left the band through his childhood friend, Michael Bonagra, was introduced to producer Tommy Camelo and producer-engineer Tony Bongiovi, owners of Venture Sound Studios in Somerville, New Jersey. There, he became involved with the building and wiring of the room and became staff engineer, where he received his first hands-on experience in professional recording. 
And we're going to continue on with the interview and tell you more about his ex- crazy extensive career. Um, but I'll tell you one more thing about all the amazing people he's worked with, or some of them at least. In 1978, um, uh, Stasium left uh, the power station to pursue an independent career. Ed has since recorded and produced such diverse artists as the Ramones, the Talking Heads, Julian Cope, Peter Wolf, Nona Hendrix, Mick Jagger, Jeff Healy, and more. And so anyway, Ed, welcome to the Arvin Lewis Show, and thank you so much for coming on. Yes, indeedy. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could uh, set the tone by talking about uh, the statement in your bio that you are the Henry Kissinger of rock and roll. Um, can you expand on that a little bit and tell us about how that describes your philosophy of engineering well, and producing? Well, that, that came up during a uh, uh, during when I was working with the Ramones on their album End of the Century, which was produced by Mr. Phil Spector. And um, Johnny, uh, Johnny likes to do things quickly. And during those sessions, I was there for the I wasn't producing. I wasn't engineering. I was actually a, more of a member of the band. I had rehearsed with the band. And by that time, I had done four records with the Ramones and had done additional guitar parts and, and backing vocals. And I became very I became tight. I was like Eddie Ramone. And that's awesome. <laughs> and, and Johnny actually didn't want to go work with Spectre because of his um, reputation, who's, you know, Phil's reputation preceded him with his eccentricities. And uh, Johnny just wanted me to come along. I ended up just rehearsing the songs with the guys and playing guitar in the studio for the backing tracks when we were recording. And one and Johnny, after the first day, Johnny was just getting fed up. And because uh, Phil would just make us play take after take after take, which he's infamously famous. He was famous for that. Um, even with the Wrecking Crew, when he was doing all his records, he would just wear them out and do take after take, dozens and dozens. And he was doing the same thing with the Ramones. For what reason? I don't know why, because uh, it, it always sounded the same to me. I don't know what he was listening for. He would listen back in the control room, out take after take, excruciating pl- um, l- levels, you know, like jet plane, 120 dB levels. Um, when it came to the song Rock and Roll High School, we had an introduction that um, we, we were creating feed guitar feedback. Okay. Um, and we would hit a chord and it would feedback. I would feedback with the amp I was using. Johnny would feedback and he just kept making us do it over and over again for at least, I don't know, it might have been two hours. And Johnny just got fed up. And after that session, he says, I'm quitting. I'm leaving. I'm going back to New York. And um, so uh, I called Seymour Stein who put the whole deal together with Phil because he was buddies with Phil <clears throat> and um, said, Seymour, Johnny's quitting. He's leaving. He doesn't want to work with Phil anymore. He can't take it. He just couldn't take it anymore. So Seymour's like, you have to fix it, Ed. You got to make it work. And you know, we have to finish this record. I'm sure they gave Phil a, a you know, reasonably um, large advance for doing this project to begin with. And, um, so I called a meeting at Joey's room in Joey. It was in Joey's room the next day um, at the Tropicana. It was a, a famous rock and roll hotel um, on Santa Monica Boulevard in, in Hollywood. And there was a great restaurant called Duke's that was in, incorporated into the, it was on the ground level. Um, 
everybody went there for breakfast and you'd go there you see ricky lee jones or tom waits or you know it was like a real rock and roll hangout i, I think those you know ricky lee and tom waits actually lived in the tropicana at some point it was a funky hotel it was it was not it was the doors were falling off the hinges it was it was wacky so i um we call that meeting i don't know how to shut my hang on a second ah, never mind i don't want to shut those beeps off but i don't know how without turning your volume off I, anyway we'll cut that out um if you want we can pause yeah let's pause it all I, I i don't i don't even i don't even know how to do it okay. it's okay we, we won't pause just continue oh okay yeah go ahead no worries yeah we'll get a couple of beeps in there it won't won't be bad <clears throat> oh you know what maybe if i put my phone on do not disturb it'll Oh yeah, it will stop that. There we go. Because it wasn't my phone; it's the computer that's doing it. Um, but I think, yeah, it says "do not disturb" on. Okay, that'll do it. Okay, back to business. So the next day, um, mid afternoon, we all met in the band. Phil, his bodyguard George, we all met in Joey's room at the Tropicana. I remember it was it was hot outside. It was May 1979. It was uh, scorching outside, but it was freezing in Joey's room. We we're all like, it's cold in here. It was probably like, you know, 59 degrees in there, which is not really cold, but, you know, air conditioning. Um, and so we had a meeting and I was the go between. I was a liaison. Uh, and uh, Phil's like, well, what's going on? And I hear that Johnny wants to quit. I said, and so. I told Phil, Phil, Johnny can't work under these conditions. He he's not used to playing over and over the songs over and over again, listening over and over again, and um, you know he doesn't want to work like that. He can't work like that. He ne he's never worked like that before, and he doesn't want to continue in that manner. And Phil's like, "Well, tell Johnny that I won't do it anymore." So I, I tell Johnny, "Hey, Johnny, Phil's not going to do that anymore." And and Johnny's like, well, well, are you sure? Because I just can't, I can't take it. And I said, Johnny says, Phil, Johnny says, are you sure he can't take it anymore? And Phil said, okay, tell Johnny. And it went on like that for not long, maybe ten minutes. And then we we went back into the studio and started working again. But that was, uh, I don't know who made that term, Henry Kissinger, rock and roll thing up. But uh, I guess I, I'm very diplomatic when it comes to dealing with. Uh, there were several other incidents where I had to uh, not put my foot down, but negotiate between band members or um, A and R people in the band, etc. Uh, you know, it's it's not my forte, but I, I thought it was a good catchphrase to put into the bio. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's, it sounds very fitting to me. And I would also say, like, I mean, every band or need somebody like that around you know whether it's their bandmate or a producer or just somebody that's hanging around you know because there's gonna be there's gonna you know when you're trying to create something so amazing like that i mean everybody has their own opinion about how to get it done and they need a media so it sounds like you you create the created the vibe which is part of your producer skills yep. i'm sure right gotta create a vibe yep for sure you gotta make sure everybody's getting along yeah well, when did you start um, playing guitar, and how did you learn how to play guitar? Was it electric? Um, I, I, I started off with an acoustic. Um, 
It actually, I started off with more with a tape recorder. I was very interested in tape recorders. That's a long story. We probably don't have time to even get into that. <clears throat> but it, I was basically at a New Year's Eve party when I was 10 years old. and I had never seen a tape recorder before. So a the music being played back on a tape recorder at home, we had a webcore record player, just a little thing, you know. And um, the gentleman who the record player belonged to, it was my parents. Uh, it was friends of theirs. And he showed me, he took the reel off where the music was playing and recorded my voice. And I was like, oh, wow, look at that. It's amazing. Yeah. And so um, my parents uh, worked very hard. They're both working class. My dad worked for um, Western Electric, the manufacturing arm of Bell Telephone. My mom worked for Ethicon, which was the manu manufacturing uh, outlet of Johnson & Johnson, the huge uh, firm, um, the biomed, the medical, whatever they do. And um, but they would always save up a little bit of bucks and get me a nice birthday present and a nice Christmas present. So the following Christmas, I got a tape recorder, got a transistor tape recorder. The Christmas after that, I got a, an electric mono tape recorder and you know, friends of mine, new people. And um, when I had that mono tape recorder in my in my bedroom, uh, my friend Huey Murray brought by this guy, Wayne DeRose, who wanted to record his guitar. And he brought by, he had a country gentleman, just like George Harrison. Um, I, I, I didn't know, it was, it was pre-Beatles, but um, pre-British Invasion. This is like 1961 or 62. I mean, the Beatles were doing their thing, but we haven't heard about them yet. And um, so I recorded the guy and gave him, he brought a tape, reel of tape over, and I recorded a couple songs that he was really good. He actually gave lessons as well, I think. And I got interested in guitars at that time. And so the following Christmas, my parents got me a nice K um, acoustic guitar, and I started playing that on my own, figuring it out on my own, tuned it to open E. I don't even know how I did that, um, but I kind of figured it out. And then the, for my birthday, a little later on, oh, no, no, for the next Christmas, I got a K electric guitar with two okay. pickups and a Univox amplifier. Nice. And then um, in the summer of 65, yeah, I, I worked at a grocery store, saved up some some dough, and I, I, you know, at that time I was in high school already. There were bands in high school, you know, cover bands, no original bands, but you know, cover bands doing R and B. This is, mind you, this is this was uh, it was not pre Beatles at this point, but they were, you know, it was summer '65, so it was a great time for music. Yeah, and um, for my birthday that year, um, I matched. My parents, my parents matched my money and chipped in half and half on a, on a, a Stratocaster, Fender Stratocaster. Yeah. yeah. And so it was a seafoam green. And, oh, uh, seafoam green. That's so yeah. cool. I wanted, I wanted a uh, Sunburst because all my buddies, they have their Sunburst strats. Yeah. Um, but but um, uh, that the only one left at Rondo Music in Union, New Jersey on Route 22 was the seafoam green. Um, and it went through some different stages of uh, looks. Um, yeah. You know, um, I, when uh, Magical Mystery Tour came out, I painted it like George's rock, George Harrison's Rocky guitar. You know, I got, um, you know, got day glow paints and made it all psychedelic and used my mom's fingernail polish for different parts of it. And it was funny because I read, uh, you know, later on, like, way after that but within the last 10 years or so in one of my friend andy babuk's book uh, that cynthia george i actually used some of cynthia's nail polish on on rocky on his stratocaster 
Um, so, you know, went through that, then it went down to natural wood, then it got repainted again, you know, with the, you know, very, it looks, looks great. And now it's actually in a museum. It's in the musical instrument museum, musical instrument museum in Phoenix, Arizona. And what color is it now? It's, it's back to seafoam green. Nice. <laughs> it looks great. And it was, it was, uh, it was refinished back in the seventies. Okay. Um, you know, so like 75, 76, it was refinished. So it looks great. It's actually the finish is checking on it. And uh, they wanted to acquire, I mean, the guitar was trashed. I had a bad refret job. I removed all the original hardware, although I did keep the pick guard and the, and the uh, pickup covers. But, the, you know, the bridge was tuners or, you know, the old, the original ones are gone. So it wasn't all original. If that thing was in mint original condition, it would be worth a lot of money because there are very few of those seafoam green um, strats made in 63. And I bought it in summer of 65, in September of 65. So that was hanging around for a while in the store. And, and I mean, what a life it went through though, you know? And it's- Yeah, well, oh, yeah it's great. And this yeah. is a great story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. So that's, you know, and then I, I took a couple lessons from my friend Stan Bobrowski in my hometown of Greenbrook, New Jersey. He had a he had a white Stratocaster. He was in a band called the Zephyrs, who I really admired. They were great, really good players, or, you know, all kids. But they were really great. And then I started playing in bands in high school. And I was the guy in high school who had a tape recorder, recorded the bands, also would figure out the songs if we're doing a new song whatever it may be, you know, uh, Jenny Take a Ride by Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels, for instance, or I Ain't Gonna Eat Out My Heart Anymore by the Rascals, the Young Rascals. Um, I would figure out the songs, write down the lyrics, and then teach all the band members in my garage bands, um, you know, how to play it. And if they were making a mistake, I, if I was making a mistake, if they were making mistakes, I would say, that's not right. <laughs> so that, that was the beginning of my production career, really. Yeah, it just, uh, it all naturally happened. Totally. Yeah, it's all all instinct. It's all instinctive and being at the right place at the right time. That's I mean, that's the best way for I feel like, you know, rock and roll musicians to evolve and getting into this for sure. Yeah. Uh, but when we come back from break, I want to start talking about your garage rock bands and stuff, too. Um, but we're going to actually head out right now. Everybody, if you're just tuning in, my very special guest is Mr. Ed Stasium, producer, engineer and mixer and also a guitarist. And we're talking about his extensive career producing artists and playing in bands. And we're gonna take you out to break um, with a song, Skull Snap, or excuse me, a song, It's a New Day by Skull Snaps. And that's a piece of work that Ed has mixed and produced. And I, did not, I did not produce it. Okay. Um, I, uh, it was the first, that's the first record I ever engineered and mixed. Okay. At the Tony's house in 1973. And there's a story about that that will blow your mind. Let's talk about that when we come back to. Okay. Um, and then we're going to bring you back in with um, Kiss Me, the Ed Stasia mix. And uh, we'll be right back. So please enjoy these songs.
everybody. Uh, you just heard Kiss Me on the Bus, the Ed Stasia mix. And uh, Ed's got a really cool story to tell you about, about uh, the band Skull Snaps, uh, the song It's a New Day. And then we're going to start talking a little bit about his um, experience in his garage rock bands. So, Ed, um, welcome back from break. And let's uh, hear your story about um, It's a New Day. Okay, well, um, the Skull Snaps were a, um, a trio. Um, uh, black guys, black kids out of Newark, New Jersey, funky as hell, uh, great players, cool guys. It was my first experience really engineering on my own and mixing the record. Uh, there was a guy named George Kerr uh, producing, but, you know, as some producers do, they're not there a lot. So, you know, I, I basically made that record with the band. And there was one song called It's a New Day, which has the intro to it is a drum beat. Boom, boom, bump, boom, bump, boom, boom, bump, boom, boom, bump. That six five six second piece has been sampled over 600 times by rap artists and hip-hop artists since the 1990s it's it's a it's a famous track and the actual album goes for crazy expensive you know close to a thousand dollars for a mint condition uh, original copy of that thing yeah on on discogs discogs yeah anyway yeah so that's one cool thing about it the other coolest thing and i'll try to make this short because it's a long story um i met uh, vernon reed uh, from living color um, when i was doing the mick jagger record the mick jagger primitive cool solo record and we were working that's another that's a crazy long story we won't even get into how i got there and <laughs> and ended up in the behind the at eddie grant studio and in barbados for like two months um when i was supposed to go for two weeks jerry hall got busted for weed and had to stay on trial so that's a that's another that's a long story no details about that though <laughs> anyway so we ended up down there for two months and we came back to new york i ended up working on the project with three different producers uh dave stewart from the arrhythmics keith diamond the late great keith diamond new york producer and uh, and mick also produced some tracks um and recorded all over the world literally new york it was recorded in new york it was recorded in hilversum holland it was recorded in london and there were different tone reels it was crazy i had to organize the whole thing and I ended up you know going back to new york and working at right track studios which was my home base at the time um from like 84 till 90 something in new york when I, no 90 uh, when i was living in new york and um you know, based my work out of right track in new york okay. Met my buddy um, Vernon, who had the band Living Color. Mick and Jeff Beck went to CBGB to see them play. And Mick says, "I love this band. I'm going to do demos with them." So as I was when I was mixing in Studio A, um, the the mix record, uh, he uh, he and Ron Ron Saint Germain, my good buddy, producer engineer guy, did two demos uh, with Living Color in Studio B at Right Track. So we became friends, you know, going back and forth, blah, 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 hanging out, have drinking coffee, um, whatever we would do, have meals together, you know, hanging out. And uh, okay, cool. You know, fin I finished the record, they finished the demos. And then months later, I bump into Vernon on the street. It was 48th, uh, right track was located at on 48th Street in Manhattan okay. between uh, Broadway and 6th Avenue, which was that music where all the music stores are there, like Manny's, Sam Ash, We Buy Guitars, all those great music stores, which no longer exist. They're not there because of progress. Yes, and progress. I mean, there's, you know, huge tower. Yeah, progress. <laughs> yeah, progress. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> 
I wonder if the in, in the sidewalk in front of Manny's, it said Manny's in the sidewalk. I wonder if that's still there. I hope they kept that at least. Um, anyway, I bump into, um, I come out of right track and I bump right, right into Vernon. He's there. Hey, we got a record deal. Really? Oh, yeah. Epic Records signed us. This guy, Mike Kaplan, signed us over there. And we're talking to producers. And they're talking like A-list guys, Tom Worman, Phil Ramone, um, the cat who did the Steely Dan records. Uh, I forgot his name. Anyway, um, they, were, they were talking to some A-list people. And he said, and your name came up. And they're, oh. And at that time, you know, I had I'd been working steadily, but the only record I really produced uh, was a couple of Ramones records at that time and some other records that you've never heard of that I've never heard of probably at this point. Um, um, but you know, we got along and I, I said, Oh, cool. So why don't you, I was living on a uh, 78th street uptown and on the upper West side. And I said, Vernon, why don't you come by? I'll, I'll cook up some fish on the grill the grill yeah okay you know new york i have a balcony a four by four balcony on, on my second yeah. floor walkthrough with a hibachi on it but i used it you know i'm a, I'm a grilling kind of guy and i'll say i'll say i'll grill up some fish um vernon's a pescatarian and um and we'll have we'll have meet we'll meet up and you know we'll talk we'll chat okay so that the day before that uh, this is when you know we're talking what was it 86 and I would get there's a Tower Records down the street where there were record stores. Remember those? Yeah, Remember stores? yeah. they were nice. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I lived in those places. Anyway, there's a Tower Records. And at that point, I was kind of replenishing my vinyl collection. I, I, I kept my vinyl collection, but I didn't get rid of it. Thank goodness. Um, and there were a couple of moments where I said, do I really need all these? And I said, yes, I do. Um, and uh, I would go to Tower and I would just pick up. Um, the CDs that were they were reissuing, which didn't some of those early CDs early on didn't sound very good. They were like made from third generation safety EQ copies and stuff. They were like, I remember getting a bird CD. And I was like, what the what happened to this? Yeah, uh, AB the record. Um, I think it was a uh, fifth dimension. Um, the uh, birds like I think the, their third album. Uh, Crosby, David Crosby was still in the band. And I remember listening to it because I love that record. and. Um, a beat it with the uh, I was able to a B it with a CD and, and with vinyl and it was like well I, what happened to this anyway that's an, that's a whole other story I got lots of stories yeah these are great yeah <laughs> um anyway so I'm buying CDs oh and this is crazy too that day so um I'm looking through the, the CDs and I get a tap on my shoulder and I turn around it's freaking lauren bacall she lived in the she lived in the dakota which was right down the street she i think <laughs> she didn't know who i was no she thought i worked there oh <laughs> she thought i she because she, she tapped me on the shoulder and she's like can you help me where's the jazz section i want to i just got a cd player and i'd like to i want to get you know some frank sinatra and some count basie and i'm there oh i'll help you <laughs> so I, I spent some time with her cool. You know, maybe a half hour, 45 minutes, just picking it. I had a, and that's when they had the long boxes. So it just had probably like 30 CDs. And uh, I walked her to the front and dropped them on the counter. And she said, thank you, young man. You've been very kind. It was great. And I never even, I never even acknowledged that I knew that it was, you know, Lauren Bacall. I didn't say, oh, Lauren Bacall. Hi there. Hey, what's going on? Can I have your autograph? No, I just went along with the whole thing. It was great. Okay. So I leave and um, there's a little park 
that the uh, homeless hung out at uh, right by tower records there. i think it was on 60 like 66th street and amsterdam somewhere around there it's where amsterdam and broadway meet and uh, there was a um a gentleman a um a black gentleman um sitting on the sidewalk selling his stuff he was you know you, you find that all over the place it's a little, like a little it's a manhattan garage sale you know it's um, just selling your stuff i mean i've had garage sales for goodness sake you know i'm down with the garage sales i love i have found so many great things at garage sales i can't even tell you but that's a whole other story i got lots of stories i'm not gonna go there well, well, <laughs> nobody else will have usually what you find at a garage sale which is so cool oh i've found some amazing stuff at garage sales I found a 1937 RCA PB90 uh, ribbon microphone for five dollars at a garage sale. What? Back in the 80s, I swear. Yeah. I love a ribbon because, and that's the kind that you can really just sit there and play with your guitar. And yeah, it's great. Yeah, you know, it's it's like one of those Bing Crosby microphones. It's huge. I, oh, I can't, cool. it's, it's not in this room. It's in my storage room, my my, my, my mic locker. <laughs> anyway so he, there was he has clothes he has toys and there were records and i always look through records if i so i walk by the guy who go to garage sale records look through them so i'm going through the records and what do i find but the skull snaps album okay i never had the skull snaps album it was never i never got a copy of it and wow. this is like 1987 and I recorded that in 1973. I had a copy of the single that that one beat is on. That it's a new day song. It's you know the um, seven inch 45. Yeah. But I never had the album, so I got the album. I bought it. Uh, for, he wanted a buck for it. I didn't have any change. I gave him twenty. I said, "Keep it. Don't worry about it. This is you know I want this. I'm taking it home." Took it home. Um, told the story to my then wife Francine, who was also managing me at the time, and. Um, Cool. Next day, Vernon comes by. We're chatting in the living room uh, about stuff. I was getting ready to make dinner. And I said, oh, wait, I got to tell you this story about this record that I found yesterday that, you know, I did in 1973. And I just, I'd never had a copy of it. I go to my pile of records in front of the stack and I pick it up and he says, and he looks at it, he goes, the skull snaps? You did the skull snaps? I learned how to play guitar listening to that record. I'm there, what? <laughs> and it bonded us immediately. I think that's how it clinched the deal for me producing the, the, the Living Color record, honestly. Um, it was crazy. Just uh, whatever it's called. <laughs> Synchronicity. Synchronicity. That's what it's called. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, and so anyway, we're going to keep talking about, I'm like, I just love all these stories. We're going to have to extend the show or something, but um, we're going to take everybody out to break with um, the song by Gladys Knights and the Pips, which you recorded and engineered. And um, that's Midnight Train to Georgia. <laughs> I mean, come on. And then we're going to bring you back in with Talking Heads Psycho Killer and so recording and engineering. Yeah, I recorded, um, engineered, and mixed both right. of those, both of the songs. Awesome. And Talking Heads, there's a little bit of production involved, but I didn't get any, I didn't get any credit. Well, here's your chance on <laughs> <laughs> the Arwen Lewis show. <laughs> all right, everybody, you're listening to Ed Stasium, and we're hearing all of the legendary tracks that he's recorded, mixed, and engineered, and hearing all these great stories about his life and career. Find out more about Ed at edstasium.com and look him up on Facebook under Ed Stasium. We'll be right back. Without him in 
nervous and I can't relax I can't sleep cause my bed's on fire Don't touch me, I'm a real live wire Psycho killer, qu'est-ce que Everybody, this is Arwen Lewis, and you're listening to the Arwen Lewis Show. My very special guest today is Ed Stasium, producer, engineer, and mixer. You can look up more about him at edstasium.com. And we just brought you back in with uh, the Talking Heads' famous song "Psycho Killer." Ed, a um, little bit of production on there, mixed, mastered, recorded, and also I am. Very honored and lucky to um, have been able to record an album of Moby Grape songs with um, produced by John DiNicola. And uh, four of those songs on that record, Mr. Ed Stasium, mixed for us. And um, John introduced us, me and my dad, to Ed. And um, we just were kind of like over the moon about being able to work with him in the first place. But anyway, um, and we played Omaha in the beginning of the show. So you heard that if you tuned in in the beginning. So, Ed, um, I thought you could tell me about how you feel about Moby Grape. <laughs> we talked We talked during, during our little break there. We uh, talked a little bit about it. I love Moby Grape. I l- absolutely loved it. I bought that the album, the original album, which I don't have anymore. It was stolen when my apartment got broken into when I was attending the School of Visual Arts in 1968 or something. Um, but I had the original with the finger, with Don's finger, and the poster. It was still in there. Um, I do have, I did, I did find it, uh, another issue of vinyl at a garage sale. So I do have a scratchy copy of the original um, it's not the i guess it could be the original pressing and just the the safe cover let's say yeah. but um um i always i loved that record i had then i had the eight track tape i listened in the car i loved uh, and you know for i loved mixing your version i especially loved you know i put that the intro together and i yeah so i i took it i took a, the um you know, Moby Grape version and turned it backwards and listened to it and tried to isolate as much as I could and panning and, and the reverbs, the, um, the, the reverb can smashing, you know, the and, but it's, I figured out it was guitar feedback backwards. And uh, so I, I did, I actually recreated that intro. Um, you did, but you made it sound huge. I mean, like, just because you, you couldn't do that back then. I mean, I think that's what you, you made it sound maybe what it was sounding like live, right? Like way back I, It could be. I don't know. But I tried to copy. Uh, I, I tried to make it a, an identical fingerprint of what the original sounded like with the panning and everything, you know? So that was a lot of fun doing. And, oh, you know, right. the, the, yeah, the vocals, they go back from left to right. No, no, they just the, I'm just talking about the intro. Yeah. I mean, that intro blew my mind you know, when I when I first heard it because um, it was you know panning and it was different different sounding. Right. Um, you know, I hadn't heard anything like that, and it was just great. And the band were so good; their harmonies were so great. Um, everything about the band, the three guitar players, fantastic. You know, I just love that band. It was great the way that uh, you and John kind of duplicated the uh, the feel and got it going. R- really great. It was really really great idea that was, and I'm really happy that I was able to mix four songs and especially Omaha. And um, also, I, I saw Moby Grape live. I think it was my second concert ever my first concert was uh at um the village theater in manhattan um in november of 67 
and it was the Yardbirds were the headliners with Jimmy Page in the band right before the, he started Zeppelin. And um, it was um, Tiny, Tiny Tim opened up. Tiny Tim opened up. It was the first act, and then Vanilla Fudge played. And then the Yardbirds. It was. It I was just amazing. saw Vanilla Fudge at the Solving Theater Fest with Dave Mason. Uh, oh, really? Oh, oh, my God. God. He was. Excuse me. The keyboardist from Vanilla Fudge. I can't remember his name, but he looked. Mark, Mark Stein. Mark Stein. Yeah. yeah. I got to meet him and go backstage and stuff. Well, well that's I, cool. Yeah. What a cool show for you to have yeah. seen. Yeah, that was my first one. I think the second one was at South Plainfield High School. It was either late 67 or early 68. I was dating a girl who was still in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had just graduated in 67 as well. I was we're only a couple of years apart. But um, um, I went with her. And, you know, there were like 30 people in the audience. And they played their arses off. They were great. They sounded amazing. The band sounded great. I, I, it was like so impressive. And it was funny because it was in a high school auditorium in South Plainfield, New Jersey. Maybe 30. Maybe I don't even think there was 30 people in the audience. It was very small. I guess they didn't promote it. Who knows? Yeah. But I knew about Moby Grape, you know, and like my, my gal, Karen Strauss, she knew about Moby Grape. We loved that record. And um, so after the show, their backstage area was the cafeteria, which was right behind the auditorium. And the whole audience went backstage. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> and my, my girl, I remember um, a couple people, Skip, Skip Spence, and I don't know who else. I remember Skip Spence signing her T-shirt. Yeah. She had a T-shirt on. She didn't, you know, she, of course, back then she didn't have a bra on. So it was very like, <laughs> hey there, hi. <laughs> the headlights were showing. And um, she was really cool. She, she was a cool gal. Yeah, I saw her back in like the mid '80s. That was the last time I saw her. I don't know whatever happened to her, but she was she was a hip. She played drums. I oh, played. Really? Yeah, she had an all girl band, cool. uh, and in 1967, 68, and then she I played in a band with her for a little while. We had a, our own little thing. It was called Love Special Delivery LSD. I love it. <laughs> LSD love special delivery. Yeah, that was the name of the band. One of my, it was very short lived. We, we didn't even play. I remember we auditioned once for a club in on Staten Island somewhere, and it was just we were terrible. Oh, it must <laughs> <be> <laughs> bad. But anyway, it was a pleasure, um, you know, mixing your version of uh, those songs because I knew I knew them intimately. I knew those songs. Still know those songs intimately. It's great. I love it. Well, I mean, yeah, I can't thank you enough for what you did to them. Like, it, oh, that was my pleasure. And you really, you made them shine. You know, you made the sound shine. And something I wanted to talk about too is like, do you feel like your uh, education in visual, the school of visual arts, has an, had an effect on the way you um, create music or the way you hear music? Like, I like I know you don't literally see color, or maybe you do. Like, I do. Like, I kind of see in colors, and I I kind of taste music. Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. You feel like your education in visual arts has kind of um, had an effect on that, or was that just something that I always, I always was influenced by music. I was brought up with um, listening to music. My mom and my mom and dad always had the radio on, yeah. and um, to the hits of the day, mind you. And this was in the fifties and early sixties, pre, um, you know, pre-British invasion. And, you know, they were, they were fans of the popular music of the time, you know, Sinatra, Dean Martin, especially Louis Prima. My mom loved Louis Prima and Kaylee Smith, and I do as well. Um, there's a great uh, 
a documentary about Louis Prima that if you haven't seen it, if the audience hasn't seen it, just go dig it out because it's just great about his entire career. Okay. Um, you know, they were, the, they were the toast of the town in Vegas and they had a couple live albums that sound, and those records sound incredible. Um, like Just a Gigolo, um, all those records, they sound great and it's all, it's all live. You know, there's no overdubs. It's like, you know, live, mono. It's great. Love those records. So um, I was brought up listening to that type of music. So music and then the, uh, I took piano lessons. I was, okay. that's, that's, a, that's a whole other story. How many times have I said that? Um, you know, but I was, I got interested in piano. My aunt Nadine was able to get a used piano from her church right. and, you know, moved it into the house, got it tuned up. And I took piano lessons for three years from seven years to nine years and then the tape recorder came along and then the guitars but i was always just i loved i still love music i still yeah. um still listen yeah I'm I working it i've been doing it over 50 years now it's crazy well and like in the very when you first had like your like so midnight train to georgia that was like your first huge hit that you worked on and engineered and um yes recorded. as a matter of fact um on Friday, October 27th, it entered the Billboard charts for, uh, Friday, I'm sorry, on October 7th, duh, binga, 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 on October 27th, 1973, it entered the charts, it went to the charts, it went up to number one, which is exactly, it'll be exactly uh, 50 years ago on this October 27th. The 50th anniversary, and, and that was yeah. the did you know how big it was going to be? Um, I, I know yourself getting to where you are. And no, no, I didn't know. And I had been engineering for less, like less than a year when I got that gig at, at, with Tony Camello. Um, you know, Tony Bon Jovi left. They had an argument or something, and I sat in the engineer's chair, and there I was, um, you know, going literally by the seat of my pants. I didn't know what I was doing. And I get so many compliments on Midnight Train, on the mix. I mean, my buddy, Bob Clearmountain, who's like the greatest mixer in the world. Um, I, I put a post up for the 50th you know, anniversary um, on, on, on Facebook. And Bob is like, as I you, know, you mentioned, it's the best snare sound I've ever heard. I spent years trying to emulate your snare sound. And like, Bobby's like the best. I mean, yeah. he's, like, he's like the man. Um, so it was a very beautiful compliment by Bob Clearmountain about that. And um, every time I see him somewhere, I don't see him that often, but I see him at like the AES shows and at NAMM, I'll bump into each other. And uh, every time he sees me, he says, that snare drum on Midnight Train. How did you? And I don't know how I, I don't know what I did. You know, I was a kid. I, I don't even know what microphone I used. Although Dave Dominich said it was a Sony, a Sony um, C22P or something. But I don't remember. It sounds um, like you've always followed your intuition. And if it sounds right, you make it work. That's Dave what I do. Fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I just turn the knobs to make it sound like I think, like I like it. Yeah. And, you know, it seems to work that way. I just recently did a, um, you know, I got into Dolby Atmos last year. Okay. And uh, both of those tunes that uh, we just heard, Midnight Train and Psycho Killer, um, I just recently did a um, Dolby Atmos mix of a 50th anniversary mix, I called it, of Midnight Train to Georgia, which is on the streaming services it's on Apple Music. It's the Dolby, you know, Atmos. And also last year I did the, the entire um, Talking Head 77 um, uh, in Dolby Atmos, they did okay. the whole they did their whole catalog, and I helped. Uh, I also worked on several songs on, uh, on more songs about buildings and food. Their second record, so I did some Dolby Atmos there. So both right. Midnight Train and Psycho Killer are available with 
streaming for Dolby Atmos. And I'll be working on a uh, Talking Heads anniversary, Talking Heads 77 anniversary box set, um, which will include a Blu-ray of the uh, Dolby Atmos mixes that I did last year. And I'll be mixing a CBGB show that I recorded in October of 1977. And I thought the multi, I didn't know what, they still had the multi-tracks. They found the multi-tracks, 16 track. So I'm going to be mixing that. And there's a alternate version of Psycho Killer that I'll be mixing for this box set. And also the song Pulled Up, I'll be, there's a version with horns on it that I'll be doing a mix of. Oh, well, lots to look up and look forward to. Yikes. Um, yay. Uh, so we're going to run out to break really quick here, everybody. Uh, my very special guest is Ed Stasium, famous producer, engineer, and mixer, musician. And we're going to take you out to break with the Smithereen song, A Girl Like You, and bring you back in with Living Colors song, Cult of Personality. And those are both uh, Ed, production or mix and mastered and recording? No, that's all. That's all production mixed, recorded by, with a, with help from my uh, engineer, engineering assistant, Paul Hammingson, who was a great friend of mine and was a, a great, very helpful in doing the records that a lot of the records that I did, including Living Color and Smithereens. Great. Um, well, everybody enjoy the Smithereens, A Girl Like You, and then Living Color, Cult of Personality. And we'll be right back. The following tone is a reference tone of 700 hertz. The remainder of the tones are recorded at this level with the exception of the last tone, which is a reference tone at operating level. This is Ed Stasium, and you are listening to The Arwen Lewis Show. If you want to find out more about me, go to edstasium.com. E-D-S-T-A-S-I-U-M, like stadium with an S in the middle. Before the next great song plays, let's pause to consider all the people who work tirelessly to bring us the music we love. Music Cares is music's leading national charity that provides a safety net of support and crisis relief for the music community. Everyone from musicians to tour managers, sound engineers, Engineers to designers can rely on Music Cares to provide emergency financial assistance and essential resources in times of need. Find out how you can help at musiccares.org. That's M U S I C A R E S.org.
everybody. This is Arwen Lewis. You're listening to The Arwen Lewis Show. My very special guest is producer, sound engineer, mixer, Ed Stasium. And Ed, um, you have had tons of experience producing and recording the Ramones. Um, let's talk about that. And the featured song today is going to be uh, I Want to Be Sedated by the Simones. Oh, lovely. Well, yeah. One of, one, of, one of my favorites. Uh, it actually, um, I Want to Be Sedated went platinum like, you know, 43 years after it was released. It's on the wall back. There it is right over there. See? <laughs> went platinum. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was great to be associated with the Ramones to part of the, been to be part of their legacy. Um, that was because, Tony Bon Jovi when we first started the studio Power Station. I was working in Canada. They brought me back to be the first employee of the yet to be named, yet to founded location for Power Station, and um, I was working with Tony. I, I was supposed to be co-producing on Leave Home, their, for the first record of the Ramones that I worked on, and. Um, of course, I got, you know, record came out. And it was like engineered by Ed Stasium and they spell my name wrong, but it's okay. I don't care. It was fun. It was, you know, and I got along pretty with the punk. guys. Yeah, it's pretty punk. And, you know, and Tony didn't show up a lot. You know, it was Tommy, Tommy Early, Tommy Ramon and myself who made those records, really. And so uh, I did Leave Home and wanted to rock it to Russia. Then we did the live album, It's Alive in the UK. Uh, Rainbow Theater it was a great experience recording them live. It's a fantastic um, well-received live album. And I also did box sets for all those records for Rhino. We remixed a lot of stuff. We, uh, I stripped down a lot of mixes. It was, it, the box sets, they're not available and they sold out. Uh, but if you can find one of those Ramones box sets, they're just great. And um, there were my first big, 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 well, my first real production was with Tommy on, um, on uh, um, Road to Ruin, which I want to be sedated, is included. And then I went on to uh, work on Too Tough to Die, a couple other live records. So it was just, I'm very lucky. I was the right place, right time, and struck up a friendship with the guys. I miss them all. They're all gone, all the original members. Uh, very sad the way they all went. Uh, before they became, before they peaked, their popularity peaked. I mean, their popularity peaked after they all passed away. It's crazy. Um, they're so popular now. I mean, I see grown women wearing sequined Ramon shirts. Yeah, at, would you ever at, have at, at, the gro at the grocery store? You know, it's like, and uh, I remember when I was living in Durango, Colorado, and I approached one of the, she had a pink rhinestone Ramon shirt. I said, oh, you like the Ramones? And she said, oh, I don't know. My daughter gave me this. I'd never heard. Are they a band? And I was like, well, <laughs> they don't even know. And uh, I've seen Shania Twain wearing a Ramon shirt. Uh, yeah, people, people love the Ramones. How can you not love the Ramones? They're so wonderful. Yes. Jeremiah is saying his mother has a Ramon shirt. Right on, Daddy-o. <laughs> That's great. I, I have a couple myself, actually. Yeah, I'm going to have to get one. I don't have one, but I love the Ramones. Yeah. Um, I want a pink rhinestone one. That's what I want. Yeah, you got to find that. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, we're just about to run out of time. Um, this has been so cool getting to hear all about your career. Um, what amazing stories. Um, I just want to give um, a couple, I know you worked with Joan Jett and Mick Jagger, too. I just wanted to mention that for everybody. Um, we don't really have a lot of time to talk about that. But, I mean, those are just a couple other of the amazing people. And uh, any other highlights you want to just mention really quick before we Oh, you know, I love the Smithereens records that I made. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's quite a few records that nobody's heard of that I love, like a, a band from um, Ireland called Something Happens. It's an excellent record. Really great. Nice. Um, 
Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of them. You know? Well, to find out more, everybody, you can look up Ed Stasium and his discography at edstasium.com, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, find Ed on Facebook under Ed Stasium. And we're going to take you out of the show, uh, which went by too fast, um, with the Ramones, I Want to Be Sedated, produced, recorded, mixed by Ed Stasium. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the Arvin Lewis Show today. It was such an honor to get to talk to you. My pleasure, Arwen. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It was good. It was a different. This is a kind of a different format that I'm used to doing, so it's good. It was fun. Hey. All right. Everybody, enjoy the Ramones. I want to be sedated. Arwen Lewis Show is brought to you by Omad Records, featuring artist Robert LaRoche. And Robert LaRoche's music is available on omadrecords.com, Amazon, Spotify, Apple Music, and streaming everywhere. Go visit omadrecords.com to find Robert LaRoche. The Arwen Lewis Show was brought to you by Evolve Entertainment. Host and executive producer, Arwen Lewis. Executive producer, Jeremiah D. Higgins. Producer and sound engineer, Richard Dr. D. Dugan. You can find Arwen Lewis and all of her music at arwenlewismusic.com. And follow her on Instagram at arwenlewis.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.